Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where mental expedition is more epic than a space odyssey. Discovering new galaxies of tranquility and nebulas of joy. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build businesses of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. Some crazy things happened this week. One of them was a door blowing off a brand new airplane. I'm sure you heard about the uh, Alaska Airlines flight. You know, I travel quite a bit. I've taken that Alaska air route from Portland, and I can't even imagine that happening. In an airplane, the cabin pressure is carefully maintained to ensure like a safe, comfortable environment for the passengers. And when the cabin is breached, like, you know, a door blowing off mid-flight, it results in a catastrophic depressurization. And that poses an immediate and severe risk to everybody on board. It's nuts. But similarly, when an individual continuously internalizes stress without addressing it, they're kind of like that airplane, steadily building up that internal pressure it's inside. And the situation is sustainable as long as the cabin pressure or in this case, the individual's capacity to manage stress, remains within the safe limits. However, just as the structural integrity of an airplane can be compromised by excessive pressure or you know something crazy happening like a door seal failing, and it leads to a catastrophic failure, a person holding in too much stress can reach that same kind of breaking point. Burnout is akin to this critical point of failure. It represents a state where the accumulated pressure of unaddressed stress becomes too great to handle. And just like the sudden and dramatic consequences of an airplane door blowing off, burnout can manifest suddenly and quite disruptively, leading to severe physical, emotional, and mental health issues. Now, it's a stark reminder of the importance of regularly addressing stress, maintaining mental and emotional well-being, and seeking help when needed to prevent catastrophic outcomes. We all live in a high-stakes world, a high-pressure business, where the weight of growth and financial strains, team dynamics, and, and you know, add on top of that personal relationships can often feel like a juggling act on a tightrope over the Grand Canyon. Yeah, there's, there's one ball that's crucial not to drop, and that is your mental health, your mental fitness, your emotional well-being. And maintaining that mental well-being isn't just a personal priority, it's a professional necessity. If you could use some encouragement and support from fellow B2B SaaS funders on your journey, check out Champion Leadership Group. Like I mentioned, you get mentors, fractional C-suite, professional advisors, and a peer network all rolled into one. It is the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. We're kicking off a new growth accelerator scale up this month, and I would love for you to be a part of it. You've navigated the startup storms and emerged victorious. Now it's time to elevate from success to significance. 
This is zero fluff, just the hard-hitting strategies you need at the right time. That's really important. We focus on capital-efficient growth, profitability that lasts, and achieving the kind of valuation that's not just impressive, but impactful. You'll gain access to a network of peers, custom growth roadmap, and the kind of operational excellence that frees you to focus on what really matters. Plus, enjoy the success that you've built. We have a lot of fun. It's time to step beyond the day-to-day grind to lead with vision and live with freedom. If you're ready to not just lead your market, but redefine it, visit championleadership.com. It is where leaders evolve and companies transform. Apply to join the next cohort. Now is the time to scale up. Championleadership.com. Our founder on Tuesday was Andrea Waltz, co-founder of Courage Crafters and best-selling author of Go For No. She revolutionizes rejection in sales and business. You know, I just love counterintuitive strategies. And Andrea brought that fun gamification to sales and leadership. And, and we all need that. Our expert guest last week, I mentioned earlier, Ollie Wood, founder of The Body Reset. Ollie shared insights into how to run your body like a business. Helpful, actionable, and insightful. Great perspective. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Kenneth Berger. Kenneth coaches startup leaders to prevent burnout, take a stand for the life they want, and leave their unique mark on the world at large. That is just awesome. With 20 years in tech, a former founder backed by top investors, and one of Slack's earliest hires, Kenneth helps business leaders minimize their suffering, maximize their impact, and find peace and balance in their lives. Welcome someone who is bringing sanity back to the C-suite, Kenneth Berger. Hey, Kenneth, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about your background and how did you become a, a trusted confidant for CEOs? Oof. Well, it's a story of ups and downs, suffice to say. You know, I worked in, you know, big tech companies, Adobe for a long time. I was a founder myself with a friend of mine from grad school. I rode the sort of startup rocket ship at Slack. And it was funny because coming out of all, all these experiences, I got sort of the best of, to me of, of the tech world of like really, you know, working on cutting edge technology, making a big difference in the world, really changing how people work. And I got all the unfun, stressful stuff, right? Of fighting with the co-founder, being fired or laid off, of, you know, having conflict and stress and change and and sort of having to sort of make these really hard decisions under a lot of uncertainty. And so I think, yeah. you know, when I came out of Slack, I had this sort of funny option, right? Where, and on the one hand, I could have gone into even more operational roles. Like I was interviewing to be VP product, various places, but I was really thinking about like, yeah, there's a lot of people who are good product people or good product leaders. And I just didn't feel like there were a lot of people who are taking care of, you know, just how, how people feel day to day. Cause you see so many tech people, startup people sort of going through a lot of stress, burning out, not yeah. really being able to do this stuff long-term. And so for me, that's what my mission is about is to sort of help people do this work long-term and not have it be a year or two and then burn out. And so really I was, you know, I was lucky enough to have some notoriety from Slack and I kind of wrote that in my network and got into doing it and went through a bunch of coaching training. And here we are today. I've been doing it for seven years full-time. That's awesome. That's awesome. And being a founder, having been there yourself, I mean, you know what that stress is like. You know what it is. It, it can be a, a really lonely journey. 
Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it work becomes life in a lot of cases. And so burnout has been a big thing that you've helped, um, founders and, and execs work through. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, burnout often comes from feeling that the stakes are so high that you cannot fail, right? Because the things that people do that lead to burnout, right? It's like, it's not a surprise that you don't get uh, a very positive outcome out of it, right? If you work 14 hour days for two years in a row, you never take a vacation, right? Like, of course, you're not going to feel good day to day, right? And so it's not like the outcome is a surprise necessarily. And so what I get curious about is more the motivation, right? Of like, why are you continuing to do this when it is so obvious that the outcome, okay, might be good in certain ways, but it's really negative in others. And usually that's about the sense that it is not okay to fail, right? There is no option where, you know, these the things can go wrong or not go my way. I need to put absolutely every waking hour I have into this or else, which, you know, I think I have a lot of empathy for, and I think a lot of people can relate to. And if you look at the stats, right, it's like most startups fail. And so actually things not working out is not necessarily the black mark that people think it's going to be. But that belief, that belief that there's no other option than pushing forward to success, that's the thing that really I find centrally leads to burnout. Oh, definitely. And I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to, to succeed or to, to do things. And we think that if, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done, or at least it's not going to get done right. Yeah. And so we, we, we don't let things go. What are some big challenges or pain points you see when it comes to preventing burnout? You know, there's, there's, there's different ways you can approach this, right? So I think to me, the, the most important one is doing the work on yourself to feel safe and feel okay, regardless of what outcomes are. Cause I think in any job, right, we don't control the outcomes. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, until we get there, but especially in startups, right? You know, especially when yeah. you're starting something new, you really don't know what's going to happen. The uncertainty is extra high. And so if you're basing all of your sense of safety and calm on this idea that you're going to be able to predict the future, man, like none of us can do that. And so really what I work with a lot of clients on is, is that, you know, working through some of their beliefs that keep them from feeling safe day to day, regardless of outcome to be able to say, yeah, you know what? I'm valuable no matter what happens with my company, right? If it crashes and burns, whatever, I'll start a new company. I'll get a different job. You know, I still have my family, people who love me, friends who care about me. Like not all of my meaning needs to come from these external markers of success, right? The, the sort of success you post on LinkedIn. So can the pendulum swing too far the other direction where, you know, oh, it doesn't matter if I fail or not, then, you know, we'll figure it out later. So this is a great question. I get this from every entrepreneur, right? Because they say, you know, like this, this voice in the back of my head that says I can't fail, like that's been fueling me for years. Like what happens if I get rid of that? And, and I got to validate that, right? It's true. Like, you know, talking shit to yourself in your head will motivate you, right? But it's not yeah. the only way to motivate. And so I think often what I'm introducing them to is just this idea that your dreams are motivation too, right? The excitement you have when you think about what if my vision became real? Right. What if I got to the next level in terms of, you know, having more customers or, you know, building a bigger growth path or having more employees or, you know, whatever the milestone is for you that's meaningful to you personally? That's a ton of motivation. But I think people are so used to sort of running from that negative motivation of like that fear of, oh, I don't want the bad thing to happen. But they don't think about how powerful it can be to run towards the good thing to say, yeah, like I'm so excited about the future of this company. 
of course I'm going to work on it. It doesn't have to come from fear. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think the biggest mistake startup leaders make when it comes to achieving their dreams and they're running toward that? What, uh, what trips them up? You know, I think for me, the, there's sort of two, two main sides to the, the process as I think about it. So I think, you know, one is, you know, sort of what I just mentioned, right. Of like working through whatever limiting beliefs you might have that sort of prevent you from moving forward, feeling safe, sort of taking bets and making choices. And I think the other side of that is really, it's about asking for what you want, right? Because that sort of encapsulates, you know, any goal you might have, right? It's like, if we want to accomplish a goal, it's going to be about influencing other people to some large degree, right? And so I I find that usually the the growth path for people is on one of two sides. You've got the set of people who are not really asking enough, right? Like maybe they're they're saying, oh, you know, actually things are fine. You know, I, I don't need anything. You know, it's it's just the way things are. The status quo is okay. Or you've got the people who maybe they know what they want, but they say, oh, it's not even worth asking for it. It'll be too scary or too painful, or I know I'm going to get a no anyway. So why even bother? And so, you know, these are these, these examples of limiting beliefs that keep us from actually standing proud for the things that we want. And as you can imagine, right? Like you can work through these things and actually get to a place where it does feel safer to articulate, yeah, I want to make a change. I want to see something different in the world. And I'm willing to stand up proudly and ask for it. And that kind of leads me to the, you're working on a book right now, ask for what you want. That's right. That's uh, right. Tell me about that. I mean, that kind of leads right to it. You know, ask for what you want. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love this because I think asking for what you want is just, it sounds so simple, so silly, so easy. Um, Of course, we all know how to ask for what we want, but a lot of times we don't really follow through with it, right? Maybe we ask once and we ask tentatively and, and, you know, and we, we don't get a clear answer and we kind of give up, right? Or maybe we ask again, we try a different way. Maybe we ask a different person, but often, you know, we, we do one or two tries, or maybe we even just get too scared and don't do it at all, or don't ask in a full, complete way. And so we just kind of get scared and stop. And to me, what I've observed is asking for what you want is how you get everything in life. But to do that, you've got to iterate, right? It's just like iterative product development. You've got to ask and ask and ask and ask again. And not in a way of just being annoyingly persistent, right? Because asking the same thing 10 times isn't, it probably isn't going to work, but more like, how do I learn from it each time? And that sort of gets to the other side of it, right? If you've got some people who are, you know, sort of their, their edge is more about asking more. Um, you've got other people who are their edge is more about listening more, right? Like maybe they're very confident and they say, oh yeah, I'm happy to ask for what I want. I ask for what I want every, everywhere I go, but often they're not really listening to the response. So they're not getting that feedback loop of, oh gosh, I'm getting a lot of no's, right? Like, huh, interesting. Or some people are actually even being offended by the way I'm asking because often big askers are asking with a lot of force or entitlement of like, you better give me what I want. Right. And that's not often an effective way to ask. But if they're not listening to that response, they're not learning from it. Yeah. I think the learning experience and the listening is so important in that process. And I think also understanding what you really do want and and articulating that in a way that that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to to me, it's, it's, you know, I think of it as a three-step process, right? Of number one is articulating what you want, right? So that's not saying, oh, everything's fine, but saying, okay, like I'm okay with the way things are, but actually I do have some desires. I do have some things that, that I'd like to be different. I'd like my business to be larger or or to have more customers 
or to have different employees or more employees or to have different behaviors or different culture among my employees, right? You know, anything you can imagine can fall under this realm of, you know, asking for what you want, be it external customer oriented or um, kind of more internal sort of process oriented. And then it's about standing up for what you want, right? Actually asking for it publicly, right? You know, going from, oh, this is something I know I want to, am I willing to take a stand for it publicly and say, yeah, this is who I am. I'm a person who wants this. And that that often sort of bumps up a lot against a lot of kind of imposter syndrome type behaviors that say, oh, like, is it really like, you know, am I, is it okay for me to ask for this, right? Have I earned this yet? Yeah. Do I not have what it takes? And then the third step is, you know, what I was just talking about of really listening to the response and learning from it. Because so often we either give up, right? If we don't get a, a yes immediately, or we kind of ignore the response and just plow forward and say, well, you know, like I, I deserve a yes. I'm going to, I'm going to get a yes, whether, whether they like it or not. And both of those are kind of problematic, right? Like you got to actually listen to your response and take it seriously because that's your data to learn and move forward. Right. Yeah. Learn, iterate, and and maybe reformat the, the ask. Absolutely. And guess yeah. what? Even if you don't get what you want, right? Because it's not like anyone can guarantee you're going to get every dream you want in the world. But if you follow this process and you actually go through and try and try and try again and iterate, even if you don't get it, it's not like you're giving up because you say, oh gosh, like I just can't take it. You know, it's not worth it to me to ask anymore. Like you can go out of it feeling good saying, I gave it my all. I tried everything and it's okay that I don't always get what I want because I'm not going to go to my grave thinking, oh, I wish I just pushed a little harder or tried again. You'll go saying, no, I tried. It didn't work and that's okay. Right. At least I gave it my all. Hey, you're definitely not going to get what you don't ask for. Indeed. Yeah. So I think that's important. Well, you brought up something else that's really interesting. And that is uh, imposter syndrome. It's that voice in the head that, it, I mean, I think it's, you know, when you become an entrepreneur, it, uh, it's amplified probably times 10. Oh, yeah. Of, uh, the, you know, the, the, the inner critic. Tell me about that. And how do you beat that inner critic? Well, it's interesting, right? Because I, I think a lot of people come to me and they say, oh, like I've got this voice that's, you know, you know, talking shit about me in my head 24 seven. How do I get rid of this guy? I don't want him anymore. And what I, what I tell folks is it, it tends to be not so much that, that the inner critic goes away or you never have a moment of imposter syndrome. The shift that I see people go through that's so powerful is just not believing it so much, right? Hmm. Is because sure it's going to come up. You're going to have a moment where you doubt yourself or you're not sure you have what it takes, but the opportunity is to catch yourself and say, Oh, I'm doing that thing again. I got that imposter syndrome thing, you know, doubting that I have what it takes. And what growth looks like is to remind yourself, no, I do have what it takes, right? I'm going to give it my best shot and we'll see what happens. And so it's not that we don't have moments of weakness or fear or doubt. Of course we do. That's totally human thing. It's that we don't take it so seriously and say, oh yeah, there is something wrong with me. Like I am missing something. Like I'm a flawed (laughs) human being. I should be ashamed. But to say, no, this is like, this is just a little feeling that's a moment. I can, you know, the more you practice, the more you can flick it away and it doesn't become this big thing that feels so serious and real and overwhelming. Another myth I think we deal with is, is leaders, you know, whether it's executive leaders or founders, entrepreneurs, I mean, all of the above is, is we have this idea that, you know, in order to, to get somewhere and to, to achieve something, it's going to require massive amounts of suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, somebody was saying the other day, it's like, you know, eating at a glass buffet. 
in, in order to, to get there. So how do you minimize the suffering and still, you know, push people to maximize their impact in the world? This is a great question because, you know, there's no life without suffering, right? Like suffering is, is just part of life and is certainly part of entrepreneurship. And so the, the direction that, you know, I'm often, you know, helping people find is to actually choose the suffering on purpose, right? Because there's no option that has zero suffering, right? But I think often, you know, often the unnecessary suffering I see for entrepreneurs is where, again, they're in this mode of, well, I can't fail. I can't quit. I can't stop. And so they don't feel that they have a choice. They say, I just have to suffer because there's no other option. And so part of what we do there is start to really open up options because we always have an infinity of ways that we could see things. There's always, you know, infinity yeah. of different options out there. We just don't necessarily let ourselves see that. And so once you see, oh yeah, I always have options. I always have, you know, a different, different way I could go here. Then it can be more about choice of, okay, do I choose to continue with this, uh, you know, with this, this, um, you know, this company or this direction or this point of view, um, you know, even if it comes with suffering and you can make that choice of, is it worth it to me or not? Right. Is this an effective way to see things? Is this something I want to invest in? And so that way it's not like the suffering goes away, but at least you're suffering on purpose, right? To say, yeah, like I want to take on this suffering because it's so worth it to me for the payoff. It's so meaningful to me as opposed to like, I'm stuck. I have no choice. Right. You, you, when you say you have no choice, you're, you're putting power somewhere else. You know, it's, it's not anything I can control, but when you're making that choice, you're really taking back your power and saying, Hey, it is going to be worth it because my commitment to, to whatever the cause is, is far greater than what the suffering may be. Yeah. And guess what? You know, if you want to, you know, quit and take a nine to five day job, there's no shame in that, right? You can do that. But there's going to be suffering either way, right? That, you know, even in that job, it's not like everything is hunky-dory easy every day. There's always trade-offs in any decision we make in life. But again, 100%. the idea is that we own the choices we make. And so at least, you know, we can take responsibility for whatever suffering there is along the way. So why do you think we psychologically limit those options and say it, it's it's only this way, I have to do it that way, instead of really taking taking stock and making a decision? Well, I mean, really, it's about it's about fear, right? So when we say this is the only thing we can do, usually what we really mean is part of me is so afraid of the alternative that I cannot allow that to happen. Mm. It is not safe. Like something horrible is going to happen. And so really what I try to do with clients is really normalize that to say, yeah, all of us have parts that get scared that are trying to protect us from these, you know, sort of these sort of awful worst case scenarios. And so there's a practice where we can get curious about them instead of sort of dismissing them or saying, oh, this is so bad. I don't like this about myself or 100% believing them on the other extreme saying, yeah, this is a disaster. Like we have to prevent this at all costs. But to actually get in this middle ground where we say, yeah, like I want to understand, like, what are you so scared about? Right. And really getting curious of like, yeah, what what is this worst case scenario that's so awful that I'm trying to avoid? And so there's a way in which we can both bring a lot of compassion for ourselves that, of course, we get scared. Of course, we think about worst case scenarios. Like, what would it mean if my business failed? Right. Would my reputation be ruined? Right. Like, would everyone see me as a failure? How would that feel for me? But to actually check of like, wait a minute, is that really realistic? Is everyone in the world going to think I'm in a failure? Right. If one thing doesn't work out, is that really true? Right. And so we can both bring compassion for, of course, we feel that way sometimes. And introduce an alternate perspective of, 
yeah, like how really true is that, right? Let's check the facts on this. And often we find it feels true, but it's not actually true. And that can, that combination of kind of compassion and reality check can be a great way to sort of soften that and really open you up to seeing more possibilities where maybe it didn't feel safe to to see those possibilities before. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the greatest exercises we can do is when those those thoughts come is well, is that true? And is it really true? Yeah. And and I think you're exactly right. Most of the time, no, it's not. And there may be a little tiny element of truth in it, but uh, you know, those those thoughts most of the time they're not true at all. Mm-hmm. Or at least if they if they are true, right? You know, worst case scenarios can happen, right? I can't guarantee sure. that you know, some horrible thing wouldn't happen, but what's the actual likelihood, right? And given that we don't know, it, it comes down to not, because we because we don't know, we're not going to be able to predict exactly what's going to happen. So we have to kind of learn to trust ourselves to say, well, every single other crazy thing that's happened to me in my life, I figured it out. I went forward anyway. So instead of saying, oh, I won't be able to handle this next one, whatever it might be, why don't I trust myself to say, you know, I've handled everything else in my life, okay? Like, why don't I just trust myself that I'll be able to handle the next thing too? Well, you've been in, in small companies and uh, you've done startups and and in Slack, you know, grown from small to big, I mean, early, early hire at Slack. Uh, what types of lessons did you learn on that journey? Mm. Well, that was, that, that was definitely one of the sort of, you know, uh, genesis points of my own sort of coaching journey. I think because, you know, I learned a lot of great positive lessons right around, you know, I love the strong culture at Slack, right, where they the CEO really stood strongly for, um, you know, operating very specifically around certain things, like caring so deeply about the customer perspective, you know, above, you know, just making money or optimizing the company perspective of, you know, really taking a strong opinionated stance, right, to say, no, like, we're going to set a high bar here. And we're not just going to say everyone gets a gold star. We're going to say, no, we... We say things have to be really, really good here. And this is what good looks like at this company specifically. So I love some of those things about setting setting a bar and setting a culture around that. And there was all this, you know, for me, a lot of stress around kind of letting, I guess, you know, I think of it as taking the CEO's baby, right? Because, you know, I was taking over product, you know, from this very, uh, you know, accomplished product CEO. And so I think he knew that, he needed to let go of product, but he didn't want to, right? That was his baby. He was like, no, no, this is mine. I want to keep it in my chest. And so it really, to me, opened up a lot of the psychological aspects of work that it's not just about, oh, what's the backlog look like? What's the next set of features or bugs you know, that, that we're going to you know, fix or implement? But about, yeah, how do I build, build trust and connection so that we can make this handoff in a way that actually feels safe and positive and connected? And so I think a lot of my lessons were really about like, yeah, all this operational stuff matters, but it kind of opened my eyes to just how important it is to pay attention to the emotional side of it and the relationships that we create at work, which, you know, there's a whole set of, you know, a hundred different lessons underneath there. But I'd say because I cared so much about the product at Slack and so many people did, and because, you know, that was something that was so pervasive, it really opened me up to that emotional side of work. How do leaders inspire that kind of loyalty where, where you really build a team that is as committed to the product and the vision and seeing that through as you are as a founder? It's interesting because I think that in some sense, sometimes when I hear founders ask that question, 
They're asking it in terms of, okay, how do I convince any given hire that might come across my plate yeah. that, you know, that my vision is the right vision and they should be inspired by it, right? Big mistake. Right, exactly. This is a losing proposition. Some people are going to think your vision yeah. is bullshit and that's the, very much their yep. right. And so instead, I tend to think of it the other way, that by having a very opinionated vision for what your company is, what impact it's going to make, what kind of values you're going to run it with, that way you both attract the people who say, yes, absolutely, this is the place for me. And the people who don't like that, they're running the other direction, which might feel like a short-term loss of, oh, like this person, they were a perfect data scientist. But okay, maybe they weren't the right data scientist for you and for your company, right? Right. Yeah. Way too often those forced hires are trying to, to hire somebody with the right skills and then convince them to buy into the mission. Is It's just a losing proposition. Yeah. There's safer, easier jobs out there, right? It is hard, yeah. right? Like working at a growing company, figuring out something new, you know, negotiating with a small team with a lot of you know big opinions. And so you kind of got to select for people who actually want that, who see it as a positive. Right. And the people who don't see it as a positive, you know, they can go work for Google. Right. You know, nothing against Google, but it's a different it's a different experience. Have you seen a lot of challenges with people moving from a large company like that to a new startup or from a startup to a large company? For sure. I mean, I think especially if you've been in one environment for a long time, I think it can take time to open your eyes to different ways of seeing things. But to me, this gets to sort of, you know, larger questions around like how do we how do we take perspectives at work because i think the you know one of the most classic ways we get into conflict at work is to say well this is the one way to do things right and i'm right and you're wrong yeah. right and i think there's a really important distinction to be made there where okay sometimes you're going to need to make a decision as a leader right to say okay this is the way we're going to do it but that doesn't mean you're right right we don't know that in advance right we're going to find out what's right later on you know when we actually see the results but I think what I find from you know people who've been in one background for a, a long time is maybe they're more inclined to sort of be very set in their ways and to say this is the right way to do it, this is the only way to do it, and you know they might they might very well be right. Like it depends on the situation, of course. But that's not a productive way to build a strong relationship with other people, right? Because ideally, what you want is to be able to say, "Hey, I see multiple perspectives. I can totally validate. I see why you might see it, you know, this way, perspective A. Why you might see it this way, perspective B. But I'm going to own that I see it my way, which is perspective C. And so that's why I'm going to make this call here. Which doesn't mean that your perspectives are wrong, but I'm going to own that I'm making this call, and we'll see what happens. And that's to me, that's a very different way of making a decision versus the way we often do it of saying, I've got all this data, which proves I'm right. And you're all wrong, right? right? You don't have to be right, right? Make the call. We'll see what's going to be right when we get down the road. So how should we deal with conflict in businesses? I mean, you've got you know two people that do have those different opinions and, and there can be some some knockdown, drag out arguments in business <laughs> over, over who's right and, and relationships that just go really sideways in that. How do we keep that from happening? Well, uh, keep keep that from happening is a tall tall order, right? I mean, con conflict <laughs> is is you know part of being a human being, and so I think in some sense, like the 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 sort of quote unquote solution tends to be not making conflict go away, but kind of normalizing it, making it safe. Because I think where yeah, where conflict conf is healthy, right? Like, well, healthy conflict is healthy, right? So healthy if we're going conflict is healthy. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> So if we're going around, you know, threatening people saying like, you know, like, you know, do this or you're fired, 
right? Or if we create an unsafe environment around conflict where it doesn't feel safe to disagree, then that's where, you know, you're starting to get into these unproductive cultures where like we're making decisions, but like, are are we really hearing all the opinions? Like, because maybe some people are too scared to actually say what they really think. And so to me, I like to draw a clear distinction between, um, sort of hearing out people's opinions and validating like, okay, like I can see like why you would think that, right? Like, you know, given this set of assumptions or this way of looking at the world and owning the disagreement, right? To say, and I hear your point of view, but I see it differently, right? And so that way we don't have to make disagreement a dangerous thing, right? Where every, anytime we disagree, it's a problem and it's a fight, but to say that disagreement is normal. We're all different human beings. Of course, we feel differently. We think differently about things. And so we don't need to have consensus on every thought and every feeling, right? We just need to make a decision, right? And the decision may or may not, may or may not be made by consensus, right? Maybe in some situations, consensus makes sense. And in others, there's going to be one decision maker, right? And it's going to depend on the situation, what's appropriate. But normalizing that we disagree all the time, and that's fine, to me is sort of the central thing. It's like, yeah, like we have different opinions. It's totally fine. Yeah, as long as we end up with with some decision in the end that that can be actionable, right? That we come to a, some sort of agreement. Totally, and that's an absolutely separate thing from acknowledging all the different opinions of the room to saying, okay, now that we know the opinions, how are we going to make a call? Right? Is it yeah. is it consensus? Is it you know the leader listens but makes a call themselves? Is it a solo call where you know it's just just the decision maker? There's lots of different ways to make decisions, all of which have their place. Have you had those types of conflicts where you have to kind of look at it and do a little self-inquiry and, and try and figure out, you know, what to make of this? You know, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling and, and what should I what should my reaction be? That's an awesome question. I love that because I wish more leaders did do that. Right. Because, you know, I it's it's funny, like I. I had this experience the other day because I'm an avid tennis player, as you know, maybe you can see from my my tennis racket behind me. And my wife knows almost every time I go to tennis, I come back with a smile on my face, whether I play poorly, whether I play well, I'm just like, oh, tennis is so fun. It's such a nice day. The people are so fun. And then, you know, one day the other week, I went to tennis and everything was wrong. I was like, these people are terrible. They can't get the ball <laughs> over the net. This coach, like, what is he doing? This is such a boring, uh, you know, boring exercise we're doing. And, you know, that's, those are these moments where you can question. I said, Kenneth, what is it? What are the chances that everyone is terrible today? The coach is terrible today versus something's different in you today, right? Hmm. And I had to own, like, obviously I'm in a bad mood, right? And that got me in an inquiry of like, oh yeah, why am I in a bad mood? Why is everything seeming bad today when normally tennis feels so great? And it's it's sort of building that habit of mindfulness of checking of like, yeah, what is going on with me today? Like, am I in a good mood? I'm in a bad mood. And like following that thread of curiosity, I mean, that can open up so much more than just, you know, effective communication at work, right? It's about knowing yourself better and being able to be more skillful about, you know, how you communicate or how you do anything in life based on that knowledge, because, you know, we're not always in the same place, right? Like we bring all this context and emotion and mood with us everywhere we go. I think that's really an interesting analogy, just thinking about that. But again, you know, if you're blaming tennis and, and, you know, the coach and everybody else, then there's no power. You can't change that. Mm -hmm. But when you say, okay, how, you know, what's my role in this? You know, what's going on here that I I do have the power to fix and change and and make better? Yep. 
Indeed. You identify that, then you now there is a solution. And it's not always as obvious as as what I named there, you know, but but I think that sure. more I mean, you'd be surprised how often it is obvious, right? That if you just take the time to check in with yourself and say, Yeah, how do I feel? Like how is that coloring how I see the situation? You say to yourself, Gosh, wow, it is coloring it in a very big way. <laughs> Which isn't a bad thing, right? It's just, you know, way human beings are, but then it gives us a little bit more clarity to say, okay, like, how do I, like, you know, is this a time I want to make a big decision, right? Or, you know, is there, you know, can I, can I take a, you know, five minutes to breathe and, you know, calm myself down and be able to get myself in a better place? Or am I just going to move forward knowing that, you know, I am where I am and maybe I share that with my team, sure. right? Like a lot of teams do check-ins at the beginning of team meetings with the knowledge that we're going to have this team meeting, even if some people are dealing with some right? And that's right. okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's all part of it. Yeah, and within that that conflict, have you seen where you know somebody takes some action, and then there are motives that are assigned to that, and it may or may not have anything to do with the action, but because of where we are, we we say, okay, they did that because of this. Totally right. I mean, you, you know, they they I I don't know whose joke this is, but you know. Some people say instead of human beings being the rational animal, they're the rationalizing animal of, <laughs> right? How yeah. do I make up something that explains the situation such that it's not my fault and it's someone else's fault, right? Right, right. And so we're, you know, we're, if, if we, you know, so again, if we have stories that it's not safe to take ownership of mistakes mm. or bad outcomes, and I think a lot of us have those stories that part of how we stay safe is by being perfect and never making any mistakes, Right then it's very, we have a very strong incentive to start making up stories to say it's somebody else's fault. And so, you know, it might feel perfectly natural, but it's really a coping mechanism, right? That we have this discomfort around owning, oh yeah, maybe I screwed up or maybe I didn't get the result that I wanted. And because that feeling of actually owning the reality of that is so uncomfortable, we have this this reaction of like, oh, let me me make up a story that, you know, it's someone else's fault and I'm going to characterize them. And then they're going to get mad, right? Because, you know, nobody likes being characterized unless it's saying you're so wonderful and awesome and perfect, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's another thing that, you know, knowing yourself better, I think, can help, you know, can help with in in the workplace and beyond is just saying, oh, yeah, like I have this habit that I get into. And so to be able to catch yourself and say, "Mm, okay, maybe let me check that. Like, is it really, do I really know what's going on with them? Let me get more curious versus assuming I know the whole story. So do you have specific techniques or practices, whether they're normal or maybe unconventional, that you recommend to business leaders for finding peace and balance in their lives? I was going to say, are you looking for unconventional? We can get wacky. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. You know, I think I think ultimately when we talk about peace and balance, right, like that's that to me is more about like, you know, daily emotional affect, right, that I think a lot of folks initially come to me more focused on external outcomes. Like, okay, how do I take the most you know effective steps to sort of get the things I want in the world? And the thing that's tough about that is that's the stuff we can't get for sure, right? It's like we don't, we can't guarantee any of these external outcomes. Um, the thing we have more control over is that sort of internal affect, right? Of like, just how do I feel day to day, regardless of what else is going on? And so that really does come back to those exercises around just feeling safe day to day, and so. Um, you know, if there's any practice that I recommend to people, it's really getting to know those habits that we've built to feel safe to say, oh yeah, is it blaming other people or is it blaming myself? Mm. Right. Or is it saying that, you know, nothing's wrong and everything is fine and that, you know, there is no problem 
or is it um, saying that you know I'm a victim and there's nothing I can do, so I don't have to take any action because you know there's no action I can take. And so there's a million examples of these, right? That we develop because they work, right? They work, you know, at least at a certain point in our life or in a certain context. But sure, the cost is these are unsustainable strategies, right? That if we blame everyone all the time, eventually that's going to hurt our relationships, right? It's not going to move us towards being the person that we want to be. And so the opportunity is to start looking at those strategies and saying, okay, I could do things that way, but maybe I can get better at recognizing when I'm doing that and trying out something different, right? To say, is it really that scary to own when I make a mistake? Like, it's actually fine. And the more we prove that to ourselves and try that out and get the felt experience that it's actually okay when I admit that I made a mistake, like nothing bad happens. People don't laugh at me. And often it takes a huge weight off of people to know, gosh, like I don't have to hide these things about myself. I don't have to carry all this shame. I can be open about everything that I am and yeah, feels, feels fine. I think we're starting to see some of that in the startup world, kind of the build in public, um, you know, those types of things and, and more vulnerability, which is, is very healthy because, you know, as, as founders, we look around and say, Hey, I'm not the only person that's dealing with this problem. I'm not the only one that feels messed up. Yep. Totally. And, and I, and I love that stuff, right? It's, you know, to me, it was one of the, um, you know, bright spots of COVID was that a lot of people were going through really hard times and we started to get a little bit more comfortable talking about not feeling that great, right? And just yeah. all the effect that has on everything else in our lives, right? And so the more we can be open about that stuff and just say that that's data, that's like any other data that helps us figure out how to run our lives and run our businesses and not some taboo thing we don't talk about. So to me, like that's that's just more, you know, more data for better decision-making. Absolutely. Well, where can people learn more about you online? Check out my website, kberger.com, K-B-E-R-G-E-R. Um, or you're welcome to follow me on LinkedIn too. I post some good stuff there. Outstanding. We'll make sure and link both of those in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Kenneth, great conversation today. Thanks for being on SAS Fuel. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the great questions. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Kenneth, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. You can learn more about Kenneth at kburger.com. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com, including a link to kburger.com. And remember, we're also on YouTube. Full episodes, shorts, outtakes, and quite a bit more. Please subscribe and share the podcast with a friend. They will think that you are a genius because you knew about it first. Guaranteed. And you know, you'll also get rewarded because everyone who shares the podcast this week gets an emotional escape hatch. It's a virtual reality headset programmed with scenes from other planets. Because sometimes the best care is a quick trip to a galaxy far, far away. And hey, it's way better than a mental door blowing off, right? Join us next Tuesday where our founder is Chris Strahl, CEO and co-founder of Knapsack, an enterprise software platform that unites product, design, and engineering teams in one workspace. Very, very cool. And then next week on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, we have Janet Giesen. She runs a consulting practice focused on helping B2B tech companies launch new SaaS products and initiatives startups, and big companies launching new products or product extensions. So if you want to go behind the scenes of a $50 million product launch, this is the ticket.
Well, I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.